0: Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there's no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's up to you. Click on the supporter link that you can find in the episode or show description. And with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your payment.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Knight, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House
0: Culture. Hello, everybody. It's Matt Rouse here, the Managing Editor at House Culture, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. As always, we're forever grateful to you for choosing to listen to our show today. Please keep spreading the word, telling your friends, loving, liking and sharing. This podcast is built from the support that you give us. Our last episode with Chris Lake was one of our biggest ever and has really boosted our followers. So if you're one of those new ones, I'd like to welcome you to House Culture We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can find our home over on Instagram at houseculturenet. So come on over and revel in the daily dance floor content alongside over 185,000 other party people. And if you haven't already, you can dip into our back catalogue of episodes that feature club culture conversations with UK house music originators such as Paul Oakenfold, Danny Rampling, and Fatboy Slim, stars of the US scene such as David Morales, Danny Tanaglia, and Roger Sanchez, or even those interesting behind the scenes characters such as Manumission founders Mike and Claire, Clockwork Orange ringmaster Danny Clockwork, or Pike's Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle. No matter their profile, make sure all of our guests have an interesting tale to tell so get stuck in even if you don't recognize that name as for this episode i'm sure you're already well aware of our guest he's the titan of the tool room brand a dj that delivers dangerous dance floor energy from behind the decks and as you'll hear a nice guy to boot as well it's mark knight in our chat you hear how young Mark started up his music collection?
1: I was always hell-bent on buying music. It was my complete passion. I'd get the bus into town and in Mason there were five record shops and I literally would spend all day Saturday going between each different shop, just listening to music and buying music.
0: Why he decided to take the plunge and start up the tour Room label.
1: I was releasing music on other labels, um, but then thought, you know what? I could do a better job for myself, I really could. Spend hours and hours laboring over, weeks laboring over a record, hand it over to someone, and there just wasn't that same level of, of care and attention. I thought, you know, it makes more sense to do this myself and to own the process. And that's when the idea of tour records began.
0: And he breaks down the role that the DJ plays in a club environment. That
1: is the main job of a DJ, is to understand the context of what you're doing, what time you're playing, the amount of people you're playing to, the environment, and playing the right music under the banner of what you do for that moment. That is the absolute baseline of what we're about. It's getting that
0: right. There's plenty more to hear in this one, so get yourself tooled up, As this is Mark Knight. House Culture. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us on the House Culture podcast today. It's an absolute honor to have you on this show. You're an artist, producer, DJ, mentor, and label head honcho that has had an incredible influence on the scene. Your Toolroom brand is synonymous with quality and is celebrating a very special anniversary this year. However, before we get into all of that, we always like to ask, whereabouts did you grow up and how did you first discover music that you loved?
1: Wow, that's some intro. Thanks, Matt. Um, (laughs) Right. okay. so let's go right back to the beginning. I grew up in Maidstone in Kent, Mm -hmm. Um, I guess. I mean, you know, when I grew up, it was in the... In the 80s and it was obviously pre-dance music and the explosion of djing and all that so dj wasn't a thing it wasn't a point of reference it wasn't saying oh, i want to be that because no one was a dj it wasn't an option mm-hmm. i always wanted to be a professional footballer there was no that was only yet one thing i was ever working towards uh, and i played at pretty high standard and semi-pro and did all of that but knew i kind of wasn't good enough to get uh all the way or go all the way um yeah. But running parata- parallel to that was this incredible passion for music. As I, as I say, even before the notion of, of of DJing being an option as a career path, I was always, always hell bent on buying music. Mm-hmm. It was my complete passion. I'd play sat- Saturday, um, i go to football training on Saturday morning, and then after that, I'd get the bus into town. Um, and in Mason there were five record shops, mm-hmm. um. And I literally would spend all day Saturday going between each different shop, just listening to music and buying music. If I had the money, if I'd accrued any money through the week for washing cars, paper rounds, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. All of that went into purchasing records on Saturday. So it was always in me, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, for it to be an option of a career and something I was going to do later on in life. Yeah. Back then it was you know soul music, electro, hip hop, Anything within the kind of spectrum of, 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 of black music I was interested in, anything, and, and searching it out, listening to um, Greg Edwards and Tony Blackburn and Robbie Vincent and, and Pete Tong back in, you know, early Pete Tong yeah. back in the day when he was on Victor Radio, you know, tuning in whenever I could in the evening on my tiny little radio in my bedroom, writing all these records down, and then it becoming my mission on the Saturday to go and then find them. Yeah. So that's, I guess, where the seed was really sown. And yeah. uh, further to that, um, and I put a lot of thanks into uh, to this, I guess. Really, there was a guy um, who used to put on a night on a Monday night in Maidstone for the kids. It was like a school disco, but mm-hmm. it wasn't just a normal school disco. It was this guy, I and mean, this is his name with DJ Gary. Now he could have played anything he liked because you know school kids. He could play pop, he could play where he was in the top ten, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. And he was he was uh, very very he was hell bent on playing kids right hip hop and it, you know I remember hearing I have just remixed Nitro Deluxe I remember hearing that no way at um, at, at Kent Hall it was called on a Monday night he was he was breaking records he was playing records that he was passionate about to us and it had sucked an impact you know I, it was brilliant it yeah. was joining the dots for me it was like wow these are the records I'm buying on Saturday I'm now hearing him playing them. And it all kind of makes sense yeah. um, and really furthered my idea of uh music being an option as a career um again there was uh, the, you know this was still mid eighties it was eight, eight, four, 85 around that sort of time, so it really wasn't an option yet. house music hadn't been invented so but the seed had been sown, you know, mm. and it was bubbling away, and that, that just continued all the lo- long alongside, play- alongside I was playing football. I um, then left school, went into construction, um, played football as well, did music and and all of those things. So everything was kind of yeah. moving at the same time, as it were. And um, it then got to a point where our DJing was really beginning to kick off in the, the early 90s. And I was, I had decks at home and I was into house music and I was getting the old gig. And I was like, wow, I'm getting 50 quid a week to play football. I'm getting 200 pounds on Saturday night. Wow, <laughs> this this is a serious thing. It's, this could be an option yeah and then started to play around with the idea of making music and mm-hmm. and getting into that and then it just it kind of naturally went into yeah. to, to a career i mean it started super super organically i mean i remember my first ever gig was on a tuesday night at a pub in Maidstone called gabriel's and um it was a perfect learning ground really because you know you were playing to like five people mm-hmm and you put one wrong record, and they're just going to go. Yeah. They're wrong. So you have yeah. to think about every single record. But it was the perfect way to really kind of learn my craft live, you know, um, and actually get a little bit of money as well. Which yeah, buy more records, and the whole thing kind of perpetuates. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, like you say, like suddenly the economics of the situation between football and music—you know—if you're making four or five times the amount getting out there and, and DJing, suddenly, why not? Absolutely, and and.
1: Yeah, and it it took a long time before I took the plunge and went full time. Mm. You know, there is an economic decision to make because at the end of the day, it is a business you're doing. You know, the fact that you're you're in music doesn't exclude it from it being a business. So yeah. it had to be done on, on on a sound kind of financial model. And I'd got to the point where I was working and DJing. And I said, Hang on a minute, I've got two two income sources here. Yes, it's going to be a big risk um, to remove one. But it's it's a passion, and I think I'm at a point where I've got enough traction and a little bit of momentum to take that leap of faith and go into music as a, as a full time option.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and to, to to make that leap, it's probably quite frightening, or at the time, or was it something that was you really enthusiastic about? And just be like, I'm just going to go for it, and I've always got something I can fall back on.
1: Well, I, at the time, we lived um, myself and my girlfriend. We lived in um, Crystal Palace, and we we were we were on our second house, we bought two houses already. And um she wanted to go back to college and do a, a degree course. And I wanted to do music. So we sold the house and we had quite a bit of profit in the house. So we used that to you know as again as a foundation for the next part of our lives. That paid for her to go to college. We both moved back to our parents' houses. Mm-hmm. I moved back to my mum and dad's and and then that's when tour room began because tour room is a shed outside my mum and dad's house where we used to keep the tools. And, I, and then when I was growing up, I had decks in there. We turned it into like a little studio. I went, and when we were four decks in there, I, I built this big DJ booth thing out of an old um, workbench. I kind of converted it into this this kind of what looked like the, the, the main room of the ministry with four <laughs> two mixers and all that. And we used to you know spend hours and hours in there. Mm. But ostensibly, it was the place where we used to keep the lawnmower and the, the tools, so it was called the tool room. And I moved back to my parents, and I I was releasing music, and I was just about sustainable because all the money that I'd actually I'd spent on selling the house, Mm. um, I I invested in studio gear, desk, and computer, and all you know. But back back then, a lot of outboard gear. Yeah. Um, So I was releasing music on other labels, um, but then thought, you know what? I could do a better job myself. I really could because you spend hours and hours labouring over, or weeks labouring over a record. Hand it over to someone, and there just wasn't that same level of of care and attention. I thought, you know, it makes more sense to do this myself yeah. and to ask the process, and that's when the idea of tour records again
0: yeah you know it's such a it's got such a kind of brand aura around it in terms of you know the the logo all of the 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 branding and the sound as well is very singular you know was that a very conscious decision for you to be like we're going to go down this route and own it absolutely
1: yeah i mean a lot of work went into the planning of it um and i think that's that's key really is to know what you are i think mm-hmm. that's the biggest downfall For artists and labels in this industry to understand what they stand for and who they are and and be proud of that and stand behind it because that's where it generally goes wrong people tend to chase uh, trends Mm -hmm. you know to be relevant as opposed to creating trends and that's what we wanted to do we wanted to own our own space because that space came from our heart and that's the only way to do music yeah Uh, and you have to appreciate that, that you're in it for the long run and there'll be moments where maybe you're not as on trend as others but that'll come back around again and mm-hmm. then you'll be at the front of the queue so it's about it's about understanding what you are all about and then replicating that with with the sound of what you do and and building a team or a roster uh, uh, around that that supports that as a notion and as a, as a musical identity yeah um, but we always understood what we stood for since day one and that's never really changed you know yeah. i mean so much so i can still play the records that we released in 2003 now in my set and there would work because we've maintained that as a, a as a sound and that's the biggest a compliment you you can achieve you yeah. know that, that you have a sound people send me records and they say i've written, written a record it sounds very tall room <laughs> job done you mm-hmm. know that that's that's the ultimate a accolade is yeah. that you have your sound is synonymous to a certain thing you know in the same way you put the radio and you go i heard a record on the radio it sounds very Motown." Yeah, and even the layperson they can they can understand that as an idea, and that's because it's a continuity in sound and quality and all those things that join a brand to a sound. And yeah. um, we always wanted to do that from the very get go. You know, we looked at our peers at the time, the subliminals, the the, the strictly rhythms. and thought, look, we want to do that. You know, yeah. <laughs> we looked at the, the branding of subliminal and and how far ahead of time they were when, yeah. when they came out, uh, and the con. Consistency and quality of, of of strictly rhythm. We thought, well, look, if we can amalgamate the best of both, then then that should be the way we go. And we were just lucky at the time. I mean, and my brother was a car salesman, and he just lost his job, unfortunately. Uh, my dad had just retired, so mm-hmm. three of us sat down. And we said, look, let's do something together. You know, it was sort of my brainchild to do this this record label. Stuart was as passionate about music as I was. He was DJing as well, so we both mad into house music but he was not so much the creative aspect of it he was more the business side and my dad uh, helping us with a kind of vision of what we were trying to achieve so from, from very early on we understood and we recognized it was about getting the right people doing the right thing it's yeah. called the music business for a reason it's not just called music it's not just always oh, it's all creative it's all just have fun but make no money you yeah. know it's, really, it's the music business and if we if we facilitate both aspects of, of what we're trying to achieve here with the right people doing the right thing then we have a fighting chance uh, of succeeding
0: yeah yeah and it's you know you said you your brother's involved your dad's involved you know it's very yeah. much a family affair you know it started yeah. in the back garden of your parents house uh, you know what are the drawbacks and benefits of working in that kind of environment with your family is it is it a safe? do you feel safe that safety net or is it um just instant arguments <laughs>
1: it's a very polarized thing really exactly that you feel very safe you know that everyone's got each other's backs because your family yet on the other hand most of the time you want to kill each other <laughs> so um it's yeah it's difficult it, it, it has its challenges working with um, with your family for obvious reasons because uh you can be more vocal about your opinions you know and less tactful necessarily with your own family so things are are heightened to say the least, but um, but at the end of the day you know that we've all you know we've always got each other's back so that, that it's underpinned by that notion. So yeah. it's brilliant. I mean I, I, I couldn't wish for anything more really than to have a successful business with my family and come in and do something I love every day. I'm not entirely sure there's anything better in life than that.
0: No, it, it sounds great. And, you know, you were talking about the, the tour room sound as well and that, yeah. that consistency. You know, people like to put things in boxes and genres, you know, is it tech yeah. house or whatever, all these types of things. You know, you know thinking outside of genres, how would you describe the, the tour room sound?
1: Well, I mean, we have a fairly large parameter in which we exist musically, you know, mm. We, have our, we can have a more commercial moments and we can have a more underground moments. Now, what ties all that together? Because they are different. They're completely different. And what pins it all together is the quality threshold, you know, in terms of its sonics, its arrangement, its production values, its amount of hooks. It's all of those things that create consistency and continuity. You know, we haven't got to do the same record over and over again, same thing, that runs out of steam that's boring you know but you can tie all that together with one common denominator and that's quality and the fact that we've done that then affords us then to to go on and do the tour academy because Mm -hmm. we we have a quality threshold that's so high that we can then you know teach that most things that come through here you know i have to get the stems and work on them or you know matt or george we are very hands-on in terms of a and r because we realize we've only got one chance to release a record and if yeah. we can't ring the most out of its potential before we release it we haven't done our job properly you know yeah. because we are a bona fide record company we're not just a record label mm-hmm. there's a big difference mm-hmm. um or sensitively that comes from the fact that we have a lot of staff you know we have 25 people working it's, it's a big operation we really care about the product we put out we care about the artists we care about the brand and the sound and all of those things and all of that is reflected in um what goes into each release and the passion and and, and, and professionalism and knowledge that goes into everything we put out so it's not just a case of receiving a demo and then uploading it far from it
0: Yeah, and you you talk about um, only getting that one chance to release a record. Yeah. Um, How do you, in your mind, how do you build the hype for a release? What's the best way of doing that? Is it you playing it out in like a promo sense and road testing it and tweaking it back in the studio? Or do you like to get things nailed down like behind the scenes first and then launch it? How do you work in that sense?
1: Um, I guess every record, well, not every record, but a lot of records vary in terms of the approach for example we've got a new casey lights records coming that, that is brilliant mm-hmm. it's obviously it's more radio focused so you're not going to yield that kind of feedback you would do if you're playing out in a live set because it's not for that instance it, it's for daytime radio one it's dance capital it's that kind of thing so that's about really working on the 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 record and its arrangement is the radio and it's super tight for for radio so that has an approach in its own right you know on the other hand we're just about to release the the mojo record uh, lady myself and James have done mm-hmm. and that's a straight up club record and that's about playing it as far in advance that makes sense to create hype and demand what's this track ID what's that give it to a, a choice few DJs get them to warm it up. Also, you you get that f- honest feedback of what's working and what's not working in the record when you're playing it live. Mm-hmm. That's the great thing about DJing and, and record producing that you've got the opportunity to road test things on a Saturday night, come back and tweak it and, and get it to a point of perfection or as good as you can get it um, before you then commit to release. So everything has um, its own individual um, approach because... It's not just a one-stop shop because, as I say, we have a we have a parameter in which we exist, and we 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 look at every record in in individuality and and approach that in the way which makes most sense for that record.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and and having that flexibility as well. Like nowadays with modern technology, you know, you're able to just whack something on a usb and go out and play it that night rather than have to like back in the day press it up on vinyl you know acetates and all that type of thing you know in, in terms of that kind of technological change and you know that's kind of flipped a bit of the kind of crate digging as well you know you were talking in your youth you'd be flicking through the records like writing things down that thrill of finding that release on vinyl Compared to now, you know, it can be a bit more disposable almost being able to flick through Absolutely, hundreds yeah. and thousands of tracks online. You know, where do you stand on on that feeling between, you know, harking back to, you know, from that early period of your DJing, collecting period to, to where music is now? And what's the difference for you?
1: Um, there's a huge difference. So you are much more emotionally connected to a product when you physically have to, you know, you have to track it down, find it. There, there is that that connection with that piece of music that that has more depth than just being sent a promo there really is and um even when it goes down to the artwork and mm-hmm. uh, and the the, the the credits i mean i used to love getting the train to london on saturdays and going record shopping then coming home and spending the whole journey back looking at the credits and yeah. reading and then building up this understanding of of what happens behind the scenes in making a record and then Joining the dots between the record that you bought, okay, it's the same engineer on this record, same producer on this, okay, right, okay, that that's why I like that and I like that, mm-hmm. and you start to understand the concept of what goes into making a record and who's behind the scenes and and how it comes to fruition. So I guess you're more, yeah, you're maybe more emotionally, you know, invested in that than you are than being sent an MP3. Yeah. That said, that doesn't mean to say you don't get sent some great records, but i think everything that goes around that process back in the day even the fact that on a friday we you know move fast forward a few years we'd all be in um the west end in darby street with we are in uptown records or black market there was a community of people that went there yeah and there was something special about that community the people you met week in week out up there doing the same thing you know and that's obviously gone now because it's a more anonymous type situation where people at home just just, just trawling through download sites yeah. who don't have that connectivity which was integral to the growth of the scene you know it was about community it was about all of those things and, and and a lot of that is lost and I genuinely think um and you know this is quite a big statement but some of the newer producers lack that community spirit that we all had back in the day where we'd help each other out go to each other's parties to create things everyone's kind of in it for their own yeah. gain and yeah. House it was never about that. Mm. You know, pair it back, you listen to some of the lyrics of some of the other records, it was about unity, collect the collectiveness, all of those words which seems seems to be less about now. You know, yeah. it's about oh, I and me, I'm going to do this, you know. And I think all of the process that went into to record buying was part of that original ethos and that, and it's a shame that some of that a lot of that's been lost you know because that's what underpins the movement of electronic music yeah
0: and you know a lot of it is, is shifted to kind of online a bit as well and having that being anonymous online as well it gives people the ability to maybe say things that they wouldn't say to someone's face or all of those things and be a bit more negative about um, about the way things are, um, thinking about a, a real kind of DJ life lesson you're kind of dishing out there, you know, obviously the, you mentioned the Tool Room Academy as well. How yeah. are you involved with that and how do you go about, like, nurturing talent that are coming through that? You, you've described it like a football academy. Um, is that how how you see it? 100%, yeah. Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, you know, I know that system uh, well, obviously, having, having come through it. And my son's currently in it at the moment at Crystal Palace. So mm-hmm. it's something that, and in fact, I actually built a football academy as well. Um, I have a, a football academy, which um, I run as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is based on that on, on that model. You know, it's about, look, let's be honest, you know, not only the 1% of the 1% will make it through, but there is a channel from demo submission to, to growing and understanding uh, uh, the approach we have to making music Right the way through to playing the first team and being released on tour room, that there is there is a process that you can mm-hmm. jump on and if you're good enough and you shout hard enough and, and you work hard enough that you'll get all the way through and that's what we've tried to create look the reality is not everyone will make it i'll be like oh yeah everyone will. you won't you just won't. you know but if you're good enough we've created a, a process that allows you to to work through and fully understand what we're looking for the the level of quality and you're being taught by some of the best people in the world. I mean, it's a bit like going to a football training on on Saturday. And go right, we're doing finishing today, and today's lesson's been taught to you by Pele. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's it's a bit like that. I mean, God, I wish I would have had that opportunity when I was a kid. You know, for someone to teach me of that level, mm-hmm. you just have to fumble around and work it out yourself. Yeah. But now you're getting taught by. Dean Ramirez or BK or people like that that have been at the absolute top of their game that toured the world, you know, been recognised as you know, some of the best DJ crews in the world who are then teaching you all that inside tack and information. You're getting all that firsthand along with the kind of curriculum that's based around what we do, the sound, the tour room, you know, how we go about making records, what we're looking for. So it's an incredible opportunity to to further your musical uh, growth. And I think it's a win for all, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's a win for us because we get to find some brilliant new talent that comes through. And believe you me, we have know from Maxine to people like Wheats to Cruce. Mm-hmm. To now. People, these guys have all been part of that journey, you know. We've found through that process. And who are bona fide first team players for us now that we're, you know. You know, I'm Krusty, I think he's going to be an absolute superstar. I yeah. genuinely believe that. And look at people like Weeks. Weeks turned up, but he gave to up bright and BMC years ago, and he's gone. You know, he's smashing it now, albeit in a slightly different sound now. Yeah, but you know, that was his entry in, into the into the scene, and yeah, I, I think it's a win for all. We get to find talent, people get to learn. It's it's a kind of a no brainer, really, for everyone. So we just thought it was the perfect opportunity, and I think after 15 years existing as a business where we were at the time when we launched the academy and we really established the sound of tourum. I mean, it really you know we, we had legitimacy to say that this is a real thing and i think it's going to work for everyone and it's uh yeah it works really really well and look, all credit to pete miles and my brother shoot it's more their brainchild and they're the day-to-day obviously I, you know i'm involved with with, with how we, we grow it as a business but from a day-to-day perspective they're very much uh, hands-on. I just kind of get to see the best of the best that come through and then, you know, see if they get selected to play in the first team on a Saturday afternoon.
0: <laughs> You're the gaffer at the top.
1: But he's, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he, I'm, 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 head, I'm head of football. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's my role in it. But yeah. it's great because we do get to cream off some incredible talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also opportunities for people to release. We do uh, compilations called Leaders of the New School, which is all the new talent that we put out on a kind of quarterly basis that gives uh talent the opportunity to release via the label and we just and, and again we get to monitor and assess that see the feedback of that see if they've got real traction how much energy they put into backing themselves because that's a big deal as well you know have you got all the components to make it as an artist and that gives us an opportunity to look at people to say how much energy you're going to put into your own release? How much you're going to back yourself? Yeah, because that's at the end of the day, it, it's exactly that. It's backing yourself as your own business because it is a business, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're starting a restaurant or starting to become a DJ. You've got to apply the same kind of the business principles that, that that apply to to anything you do. So it's a great way for us to you know get an insight into what artists do and the way they behave and have they got the right attributes to to kind of push on and be a you know do
0: it full time yeah absolutely and you know tool room is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year it is yeah, yeah. um so when you look at what you've before we start talking about the future when yeah. you look at like what um you've achieved in the past um are you um thrilled that you've got this far is it surprised did you think it would become what it's become I have all of these, these different outlets and also what are you most proud of in terms of Release-wise, is it your own stuff or is it nurturing new talent? You know, what where, where's your point of pride when you look back on what you've achieved so far?
1: You know what, I I don't really get that much time to kind of objectively assess what we've we've done because it's always about tomorrow, not mm-hmm. really about yesterday. And yeah. um, I think with birthdays, you've got to be a little bit careful that they mean a bit more to you than they do to the general public. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And we don't want to get too lost in that as a notion. So we've kind of spun the birthday this year into a, a campaign called music matters mm-hmm. so instead of saying oh we're 20 look what we've done great right. yeah but that's all well and good you know um but it's all as I say it's usually always about tomorrow so we've used the anniversary to kind of reaffirm you know one of the big beliefs that we have and it is that music matters that's what we start we didn't start for any other reason we started before the explosion of the internet and all of that so it was about music and music only. And, and I think a lot of that has got sadly lost in the, um, in the circus that is, you know, now dance music. So we wanted to kind of go, well, instead of shouting about how good we are, let's talk about the core message of what it should be about. So, um, that's what we're doing for the for the for the birthday for the anniversary you doing a big campaign called music matters it's, yeah it's a good strap, strap line for us as well if nothing more comes out of it it's just reaffirms what we're about we're not about anything else we're about music that's we are a music brand and um, what am I most proud of? I, I don't really know. I guess everything. I think everything collectively. What well, I'm probably most proud about what we're going to do tomorrow and what we've <laughs> done before, do you know what I mean? Because tomorrow is the next challenge. Yeah. You know, we've done yesterday. So there's been some incredible markets along the way. We've released some brilliant, brilliant music. You know, i think thinking off, off the top of my head, I guess. Brixton was quite a big deal for us when we did that, when mm-hmm. we, we, we sold out Brixton Academy. Um, it was at a point in time where we were music nights were moving out of clubs taking the, the the leap of faith to move out of the kind of safe environment of clubs were moving to hard ticket venues yeah um and i think the swedish house were the only act that had done it before us then we did it um so it was um it kind of reaffirmed the, the scad of the brand that was a, that was a big marker for us and you know literally to be in our own backyard was that was a nice thing <laughs> um yeah i mean so many great records it's, it's hard to define obviously film and needs in terms of its commercial sex success charting really well mm-hmm. then through to things like downpipe which is on the wall here <laughs> I don't know if you can see that um, oh yeah yeah which um was another great release working know, working with uh Underworld was was an incredible process which led on to myself and Dean actually producing most of their album and mm-hmm. that was a, a really interesting part of um part of the journey of the brand yeah, it's so many been so many great things, but I'm I'm all about tomorrow and less about yesterday. <laughs>
0: well, we could talk about tomorrow. Um, as I said, we're this this one's our August release, so uh, we could talk about what you've got coming up beyond that. Um, so, what what are you excited about doing in this anniversary year beyond August?
1: Beyond August, well, in August we've got some great shows coming in August, uh, August off the top of my head, we are in New York. On the fifth of August at Music and mm-hmm. we're in, doing a big outdoor show in Toronto on Saturday. The on Sunday the sixth, that should be a lot of fun. We've got a um, a big show coming up in London. We're uh, doing our first show in London this year. We're going to be at um, Village Underground. That is on the nineteenth of August. Quite mm-hmm. um, apart from. Then on, I'll begin to forget my dates, but <laughs> got some great music coming up throughout the summer. We'll be releasing the, the Lady record. And uh, What else have we got coming up? Oh, we've got a, a brilliant new thing from Salado dropping in August. Really looking forward to that. We've also got a, a release of Vintage Culture coming up in August. A record from Groove Armada. so some big names on, on the label in in uh, in August. Past that, off the top of my head, I can't really remember. <laughs> Just some really good things. The best thing to do is stay close to our our socials, you know, because mm-hmm. there's so much going on and there's so many plates spinning here. It's hard to remember, you know, what we. It's enough trying to balance it from a day to day perspective. Yeah, but yeah, it's going to be um, a really exciting year, a year we're proud of to get to twenty. Um, that we always plan to be where we are you know it wasn't a surprise it's not a fluke it was a. it was always a long-term strategy that we had um and you know we're happy that we are in the place that we wanted to be um but we're still not at the place we'd like to be we're still growing we still have aspirations we still have plans um some really exciting things we you know, i wish i could tell you about now i can't tell you about <laughs> yet worry. um but the, the get i guess the best thing is to follow our socials yeah to see what we're up to but there's always something bubbling away here
0: exciting times and yeah we've talked about tour room obviously I want to talk to talk about you as as the DJ you know as the someone who is the master of their environment you know controlling what people do on that dance floor and you know yeah. how you kind of approach your sets as a DJ you know yeah. um what what when you're coming into a gig or an event or a festival, you know, what's going through your mind in how you're going to like deliver? Do you like to get there a bit early and see what's going on? Or do you just like to just come in and be like, right, I'm just going to smash this? Or, you know, how do you kind of operate in, in that environment?
1: I guess because I've been doing it for so long now you you know uh, you kind of understand the context of where you're about to perform mm-hmm. and that's the most important thing that's that's that is the main job of a DJ is to understand the context of what you're doing mm-hmm. what time you're playing the amount of people you're playing to the environment and playing the right music within under the banner of what you do for that moment mm-hmm. you know that's that is the absolute baseline of what we're about it's getting that right you know um and that varies based on on, on what you're doing for for example i played um in brighton at bmc mm-hmm. we did the i360 pod and that was to a lot of industry people at nine o'clock so i just played disco yeah. because that's the right thing to do mm-hmm. to that environment in that in that scale um, to those people you know they don't want to hear banging tech house set would be the completely the wrong approach. Yeah. But then last night, uh, sorry, so Saturday night, I was in San Diego, I had to a room of 2,500 people that wanted it tough and played more, almost like techno. Mm-hmm. So it's about understanding the environment and the time you're playing and, and, and playing accordingly. And that that ultimately is what DJing's about. Look, DJing technically now is not difficult. Mm-hmm. i would be a liar to say it is. With all the technology we have it is not difficult that is not hard you can do it with your eyes you don't you know you don't have to be as a you know as adept as you were when we played vinyl that was a real fucking art yeah because it was just difficult it was analog it was tricky and unfortunately in some ways it it took your eye off the ball of what you were trying to do as a bigger picture yeah now you have less have to worry about the mix because that's pretty straightforward. It's more about the vision of what you're trying to create long term within the within the, the the size of your set, you know, the length of your set. Mm-hmm. You can think more long term. You think, right, well, I'm going to be where I'm going to be in five records. When you're playing final fuck me, I've got to spend two and a half minutes getting this thing in time because <laughs> it's so difficult. Let and then get through that. Go oh, right next. I'm what going to play now? Do you yeah. know what I mean? So you have less hey, capacity to think about the bigger picture. Where now you 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 don't. You yeah. just, you're all about that. And that really is what DJing's about. So I guess through the knowledge that I've accrued over the years and years and years, and, and 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 it is the only way to learn that it's the best way to learn is in situ to know what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, thankfully I had that under my belt and um that I can then apply to, to wherever I'm gonna be, you know. And yeah. um, I guess with me, my sets are defined really by a lot of I'd say 60% of my own productions because ultimately that's what I wanted to achieve is is it to be the full experience things I I make to then go and play I don't want you know there's no point in making a record if you can't play it yeah. really you know, look I'll make records for different points in time I have records that I make for eight o'clock at night and then eight o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. so I, I like to make records that fulfill all of that um because I love to play long sets. That that's what I'm all about. Open the close. That that's my thing. Yeah. Because it gives me the chance to really express myself musically. You know, it's if I dare say it's a bit easy rocking up and just playing two hours. Yeah. That's just a, you know. Look, I love doing it, and, and, and you come and you have to you have to deliver because people pay good money to see you rock up and smash it. But it does narrow the potential of what you can do because mm-hmm. you don't have the parameter to kind of get too creative because people don't want that in a short set. They want you to deliver the things that you want to do. It's like going to see you two and then not playing with or without you. You just go, with oh, a load of demos. We're going to play. Well, we don't want to hear demos. We want to hear the fucking hits. You yeah. You only play a couple hours. Give me the fucking hits. So it does dictate a, a, um, certain parameters. Mm. But when you play it all night, you can go all over the show and it really gives you the opportunity to, to express yourself as an artist. And I come away from those instances far more kind of inspired and fulfilled musically than I do than a, than a two hour set. But um, but that is the only way to learn it is through doing that, It's through playing live, to, to, to understand what works, what doesn't work, and that is the art of DJing. Yeah. The art of DJing is putting, two, putting time in two records together. It's about how do I build a soundscape or an environment over a period of time that totally makes sense, and is flawless. Mm-hmm. That there's no bumps in the road. There's no. There's no jerks. There's no. Because oh, there's nothing worse, you know. Your name can tell you when you're in, in, going to a party. And someone a DJ puts a record. Oh, he played that record, and everyone sat down. There's no difference that you know if you're playing you know, the biggest. You're playing at Fabric. If you get it wrong, yeah. you'll jar the flow, and it's all about having, the, in my eyes, the perfect flow of music that that moves between styles and and. And energies but totally makes sense. And the only way to build up that um, ability is through doing it live. So, you know, you've got to get there and, and just know it works. But well, I've got having done it for twenty five years, I've got a really good understand them how to make that flow now
0: yeah it's, it's it's an interesting point you make the real difference between whether it's like an episode of something or like the long form like bingeable series you know are you gonna That's come right. in for two hours you're gonna come in for four five six and be able to tell a much broader story yeah like you say it must be more enthusing and inspiring that way totally I mean for
1: example on Saturday I played a Friday's in San Francisco and I played from open to close And it did. We started at 118 BPM, and it was just disco, and then went into you know some deeper house stuff, and then slowly moved all the way through the energies, and then just kind of ended up into something more anthemic and 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 fun at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was brilliant. I loved it. I come away buzzing. I've got to play all a load of stuff that I love playing that really replicates me as an artist, and there's, there's a window into into my kind of soul. And then Saturday I played in San Diego and it was a big room. I I played for an hour and a half. I mean, you have to just smash the arse out of it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's understanding the context to where you are and applying
0: the right music for the right, Context mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know we obviously we, we'll come on to a bit for, in a, in, a, in a bit about the tracks you've submitted for the perfect playlist. But I do have to pick one that you've um, you've you've that's in that list, which is obviously your cover version of Laurent Garnier's Man with the Red Face. And I think yep. in your email to me, you said you'd literally get oh. shot if you don't. the audience if you don't play this tune um you know for you that track in particular is there do you is there a pressure on yourself you know you say you two you um you've gone to see them play with or without you is that is this your with or without you tune it 100% is you know
1: and I generally play it as my last record because it's it's how you want to sign off you know you want to sign off with people humming it on the way home and, and that being the the thing you work towards you know you could put in the middle of my set but it's about knowing how to program it i mean it's 15 years old now so yeah, yeah it's um it's sonically as well it, it doesn't sit as well as if you put it in the middle of your set there's a difference in sonics and, it, and then it kind of sort of under underplays the anthemicness of what it is so it's about programming and i usually pack the last record of my set and leave people with that as a as a part of gesture.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, when you were putting when you were putting that together, you know, 15 years ago, um how did that kind of come about? Was it a track that you'd always loved? Um, was it something you are just messing around with in the studio? Was it for the the Winter Music Conference? I think It I was the Winter
1: music conference. Yeah, it was um it was for that when everyone used to write, you know, and it's a shame that people don't put any emphasis on that anymore because mm. that was what it was about, you know. I've been going there cough since the end of the 90s and it was literally about writing records giving them to the right people physically uh pre this summer to kind of be that it was the precursor to what was going to be big that summer you know all the all the big a were out there scrapping over music it was an opportunity to play things for the first time mm-hmm. road test them um, and as i say it was the precursor to all the big summer hits mm-hmm. so you know uh, in 2008 i was still conscientious of that's what Winter Music Conference should be about he's doing something all that and always loved Lawrence's version of it but it just didn't make sense as a club record it was a bit avant-garde it was a bit too kind of too creative dare I say but it was about recognising the best parts of it and formulating that into something that would really translate as a club record mm-hmm. because the, the kind of backbone of the, of the melodic structure was there it just needed to be formulated into something that was more palatable and we left it. I wrote a couple of things but this was something what I did as a as a sort of plan B there was another record I, I wrote as well as which was called Shogun which obviously we did good things as well as but mm-hmm. we just wanted something a bit more fun to play and we literally started it the night before we went and I was working on it on the plane on the way over no way. finishing it off and, uh, and then dropped it at the Beatport party and, uh, and, and the rest was history
0: No way so suddenly you realised hang on a sec I've got something here Hang on a minute.
1: Yeah, well, and, and that, there always the way, you know, whenever you try and write a hit, don't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, when you just do something because you're passionate about it, that that's when it's more likely to happen. So yeah, it was one of those situations where, um, yeah we just did it it's a bit of fun initially and it just grew into the monster that's still
0: played 15 years later yeah it's crazy and you know what was um what was lauren's reaction um, when you caught up with him and he heard it and you know how did that go down he was really cool i was like look mate I've, I've done this and i sent
1: him a couple of videos but I, I think this is gone bananas <laughs> and the amount of people i had contacted me can i have a copy can i have a copy can i have a copy, have a copy? and he was like yeah i love it let's just do it so um he was super cool about it. Yeah, I think he recognised it, you know, and he still plays it and stuff. So I think there's no, there's no better validation, authentic, authentic, authentication than, than him getting behind it. So it was a fairly straightforward process in that in that
0: respect absolutely and um yeah so uh, you know we've been talking about tracks so let's move on to the the bit where we're talking about our perfect playlist on spotify so this is the house culture perfect playlist so we you know we've done over 50 episodes of this show um every single dj has submitted five tracks based on these different themes to the playlist it's you know so i think it's about over 30 hours long now she's huge and there's you know because of the themes that we've got there's stuff that's all over the show in terms of whether it's dance music or left field or you know some anthems yeah. and things like that so there's some really interesting stuff in there so your submissions uh, we always start off with a catalyst um a track that opened your ears to electronic music and you have chosen not one track you've chosen an entire album yeah which is tensity's uh foundation album um just talk to me about the first time you bought that home or maybe heard a track of it on the radio you know how did you discover that album
1: i guess with a single that's the way love is mm-hmm. um, uh, at the time i didn't really get house music uh, very uh, at first it felt a little bit straight dare i say a little bit white for me <laughs> It didn't have enough soul mm-hmm. um it seemed a little bit simplistic and then i heard that i was like oh, Shit, yeah, this makes sense now. I get it, yeah. Um, I get the connection to where I was before musically around that time. I was really into swing beat, like Teddy Riley, and that whole movement, um, Guy, and, and all, all those great acts that come out of the late 80s and prior to that sort of boogie. And you know, I was I'm, like the biggest fan ever, um, of that era. I mean, yeah. um, I'm probably still stuck very much in 1986, um, so. I was there, music in hip hop, and I was hearing house. And I, was like, I don't quite get it. There's not enough soul in it. Mm-hmm. And I heard this, I was like, "Wow, okay, right. This is joining the dots between where I am and and, and house music." And mm-hmm. then I bought the album, and just every track was killer. I mean, it's not all house on there, but nice. it was something that pointed me in the direction of house music. You know what Marshall Jefferson had done with that mm-hmm. production, um, and obviously the brilliant vocals of, of Ten City. Yeah. Um, it started to make sense
0: yeah and like you say one of those things as well where you could start connecting the dots like you're talking about earlier if you're seeing like marshall jefferson's name on there or byron stingley's name on there you know these are names that are gonna be like the launch pad for you to be out there researching you know these new releases and these new sounds coming over from the from the us
1: yeah and 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 i i was very much about soulful house music for years and years and years and i i am very much now in fact we just I've just launched a new label called falls paradise mm-hmm. um, The first single is um it's actually a cover i've done with beverly Knight of uh princess i want to be your lover oh, um no way. and uh yeah it's 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 where i'm you know where my heart is i mean i come from soul that's that's very much what i'm about everything i do i try to to bring that through even if it's a tougher, more club focused records, it still has to be underpinned with that feeling you know, of soul. There's always that, you know, that boogie in there. So yeah, when I started making electronic music, like the first record label I ever released on was Zed Records, which is mm-hmm. Dave Lee's label. Um and I played soulful House Nights. Um that's where I'm from. And you know that album that album really was the um was the launch pad of, of everything, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the, you mentioned That's The Way Love Is. Is that the track that, that, that is the big one for you off that album? I guess so.
1: I guess yeah. so. I mean, it's the most obvious choice, but um, it still stands the test of time. In yeah. fact, um, randomly, there's new mixes from the Soul Avengers, which actually made Killer Cut on my Kiss show <laughs> this this week. So it's still doing the damage now because it's just melodically and and, and as a str- as a song just great song standard test of time can be reinvented reinvigorated brought back to life and what we as a culture need to put more emphasis on that you know spend less time on splice more time writing great hooks and get working with great musicians to, to write things that are timeless because that will inspire the next generation more so than a hook you found on splice you know yeah. it takes a bit of work it takes you know it's a bit more expensive But believe you me, it will have way more impact. Um, And that certainly did for me.
0: Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about a floor filler, um, a go-to floor filler. You have chosen your own edit of uh, Peter Brown's Say It Again. Uh, Yeah. Talk to us about that.
1: It's just one of those records that I I, I tend to play every set because it didn't really, I guess it never really got on people's radars when it was released, it samples Colonel Colonel Abraham and Colonel Abraham's trapped mm-hmm. just to help from that. And um base it's just it's just the perfect record to move from warming up into the next gear. It's mm-hmm. the perfect gear shifter record that people know but they don't know, you know, um and they're the gems, you know, that's what DJing's about. It's about finding those records that in their own right, don't amass too much, but put in the context of a great set, really start to shift the gears and have emphasis. It's about finding all of those gems, not the obvious things that really do the damage. And I I don't think I've ever not played that record and it not had a massive reaction.
0: Awesome, and it works like you say in that context. Of if you are playing that longer set, these records that on their own don't necessarily work sometimes, but they're the ones that change things. So I've got to get from here to here, and you know exactly that you've got the length exactly of set that. to be able to to make that to make that move.
1: Yep, and it's it's one of those records that never fails to fails to deliver. So um, yeah, it's even, it's a sort of stalwart in the back in the backbone of my set.
0: Indeed. Okay. Um right, a sunsetter, perfect track to soundtrack, a sunset. You've chosen um Cloud Kickers, Bring On the Night, the Rocco Trodeep remix.
1: Yeah, I mean I think everything's in the title. It's it's one of those where it's it's called Bring On the Night. It's one of those you shut your eyes. I've played it a man by a few times and um it's it's just all about right, let's, let's you know, let's bring on the next phase of, of what we're doing here, let's get stuck in. It's just it's dreamy it's ethereal but it has such a brilliant kind of feel and notion to it that sort of tingles you and goes okay something special is about to happen let's bring on the night let's go you know so for me it's the perfect way to to kind of transition from, from day into night and it's got the right energy as well it's a really clever arrangement it starts really got dreamy and atmospheric and then turns into something that's a It's not club focused, but it's, you know, it's got an energy um, that feels like it it, it tells a story from what what it's trying to say, bring on the night. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's nigh on perfect for
0: that. Yeah, no, great choice. I love it. Um, Okay, a tearjerker. This doesn't necessarily have to be house music, but you've chosen um, a track from 1994, which is a deep dish mix of uh, Elastic Reality, um, Casa de de X. Yeah. Tell us about that.
1: Just brings back some incredible memories of that time for me that was kind a of real gold era of house music. some brilliant brilliant nights here in the u k we kind of things were a little, becoming a little bit more sophisticated. we come out of the fields we're into nightclubs, <laughs> and you know it was becoming more structured um still some incredible you know passion um and, and thought going into records a lot of musicians involved and I think this is Deep Dish's finest ever hour, their right. remix of this on, on, on the brilliant tribal records, uh-huh. Rob Stefano's label from from the 90s, which, you know, Danny Tanagli was a huge part, Deep Dish and all those guys that come out of the US. And it's just, it's like 11 minutes long. And yeah. that's when you could have a record that was 10, 11 minutes long and people would go for it, mm-hmm. you know, that it didn't have to be shortened into a five minute formula that people could consume. And it's just has this really long atmospheric build. And um, I remember in 1995, I booked the Masters at work. We put on a party um, called The Love Ball around, um, Rocky, we, oh, well, of course it was for uh, Valentine's Day, sorry, in mm-hmm. February. Um, yeah. And they'd never really played at, in London, outside of the Ministry of Sound. We were the first people to book them. And they started with this, and it's this really long, epic build. I just thought shit me man we we put on this party which we, we didn't even have the money to put on <laughs> how we fumbled our way through it was quite epic. it's a story for another podcast. We got through it all made about three pounds <laughs> but put on one of the most epic pies London had ever seen. Um and um they were playing on four decks and Louis just started with this mm. and everyone you could eight I don't know everyone, was, everyone had, consumed quite a lot of narcotics at the time so there was this sort of euphoric feel on the dance floor started this like you could just feel that the kind of yeah euphoria and passion and I remember uh, um yeah just feeling like Jesus what have we done We put this incredible event so I was being fairly euphoric myself and then then I'm about three minutes in Louis uh Kenny started looping up the beats from um Buckethead's bomb so he put that over the top And they both dropped at the same time but holy moly and it just had this moment for me i mean that's my personal connection to the record even though i was a fan of it outside that but seeing it delivered in that way but just the chords in the intro are just beautiful Mm. you know you can you can have your own interpretation of what that record means to you because melodically it really evokes um passion it's just a just a beautiful piece of electronic music
0: yeah and it's an epic journey as well like you say 11 minutes like back in the day like you were saying about how having those two and a half minutes extra you need to get things in on in time on vinyl that's this is why those tracks are so long back then
1: and I think it would have more of an attention span, you know. I think yeah. that's consistent with everything in life now. You know, people need to consume things in, in less than three seconds. Well, they didn't necessarily then. You know, I remember God, around 2000, I couldn't get a record in under 10 minutes. You know, you yeah. just couldn't get. And it was great because the, each record really told a story, um, less so than they do now. You know, you've got to have a breakdown every minute because yeah. people just won't accept it I I guess the drugs have worn off a little bit and (laughs) things were a bit different but um, yeah that was an incredible moment uh, and incredible record to kind of soundtrack it for me
0: yeah and you know if, if you're playing a 10 minute track now as well like what do you what do you do behind the decks for for the next like nine and a half minutes while it's playing really that's the
1: other thing as well I mean there was less emphasis on that I remember when I and I grew up, you know, and I even to this day I'm still worried. Why are you looking at me? Like, why am I just putting a record on? You know, I still struggle with that as a notion. Like, why does the DJ have to become the performer? He's just putting records on. It's not like he's playing an instrument as such. It's not. It's not that context. You know, when I used to go out back in the day, no one looked at the DJ. I don't give a fuck. You know, you were there. You were listening to the music. You were in in, in it for the music. You didn't need someone's cue to have fun, mm-hmm. and. And that's that, and it's got so out of context now. These some these look like idiots dancing around, right. jumping up and down. They're like, it doesn't. That, it's not about that. It's yeah. not. That's not the thing. That's not the thing. You know what I mean? Yes, have passion in what you're playing, and you are looked at for uh, for a cue of of kind of enjoyment. I mean, and I do. I when I play, I dance around, and not because I'm looking to show off. It's just because I genuinely love what I'm playing, but. Yeah. It's within context you know yeah. you won't catch me diving off the decks or you know putting in all these silly stunts it's just genuine passion but um there was less focus on, on on having to look at what the DJ was doing and more just being lost in the music and I think we need more of that
0: yeah yeah, and I think if you're if you're the DJ and it looks like you're having more fun than the dance floor, then you know you're not you're not necessarily doing your job correctly. No, exactly. It looks <laughs> a bit weird, that we
1: try a bit too hard like that. aren't
0: think. Indeed. Okay, so uh, we've we've already kind of covered it, but um, the last tune, uh, end of the night crowd asking for one more. You've obviously chosen your uh, Mark Knight and Funk Agenda version of the man with a red face. Um, would there ever be a context where you wouldn't play it? Yeah, I, mean, I
1: don't always always play it again if it doesn't feel right, and uh, you know, feel like it, it won't have the impact. Then don't play it. It's about reading the situation. It's not an app. you know. It's not. It, it's not just mechanical that I play it. It's it, if if it makes sense, and you know, you're getting to the point now where some audiences don't even know it because they they're that bit younger. They, yeah. they don't. It has less impact, but. Again, that's the art of DJing, picking, picking the right record for the right time, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, when we all used to work in offices, a job I used to have, there was a guy sat next to me and he's never heard dance music or house music or anything like that before. And he'd been out either some festival or some club and he'd heard it and he knew how much I, you know, was into house music and he played it to me at work. And he's like, I can't, I can't get, I can't get over this tune. It's like, and just oh. to see him, the buzzing of this discovery of this new sound, um, Yeah, it was, it was brilliant to watch see um cool okay so we always have one final question though which is um we are obviously the house culture podcast um and we're all about the culture of the scene and you know your place in it as well as someone who's you know not only contributed uh record label music you know your artistry all of these things when you think of house music culture and dance music culture um what do you make of it and what do you think of the good and the bad things about it
1: so i mean i fell in love with the original idea of 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 culture of the culture of house music you know that kind of as we touched on that unity that collectiveness i mean it had such a massive impact it ended football violence overnight Mm -hmm. you know let's not forget that you know it it literally football violence at the end of the 80s uh, was massive it was it was horrible it was not a nice place and dance music just killed it and i remember coming out of i remember being in this story one 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 sat friday night and ended up in this flat in edmonton in north london with like you know who would have been you know football hooligans it was pretty you know these people they're pretty tough chaps yeah normally you wouldn't be there and we were all sat in the kitchen you know in the ways you do and the lounge in the morning all, all sort of coming down from the night before, being best mates, go. Oh, we'll definitely meet up next week. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is brilliant. I wouldn't normally be here. And now I've got a bunch of new mates. And 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 they were. We would all end up going to the same raves. And then it was the same thing in the Ministry of Sound. It was an incredible night there called Ruling on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I would say, it was as influential in, in the UK as as the paralyzed garage was in in America it was that legendary it was a really special moment and to be part of that and to be part of the family of pubs that went every week because there were no mobile phones there was no way of connecting with each other you you met on the dance floor on Saturday night mm-hmm. and that's how friendships were born with people all over the country and that was a very special thing you know I think we see less of that now due to the internet and the community aspect of it is as diminished i think i mean i don't know i guess cuz i'm the other side of the fence now i i'm kind of i'm working within that context and less as a punter so i don't want to make too sweeping statements but i feel there's not enough of that original ethos still in the scene now too many big brands making big statements that that they that, that say that they are that and they're not mm-hmm. you know i think we need to to strip back to get back to more of that inclusivity, that that community aspect of what this this brought us. So I'm all about that. You know, it's the same thing in hip hop. When hip hop started, I'm mean, so lucky to live with two huge cultural movements birth of hip-hop and then the birth of electronic music and it's all about hip-hop was all about crew mentality about you know whether you were break dancing together you were doing graph or whatever you were a crew Mm -hmm. and then house music was the same thing and let's not lose that let's not lose that collectiveness and and the fun you had together enjoying brilliant music in brilliant situations you know i i do hope that that we maintain that as, as an ideal and, and, and an ethos of what this is all about so that's what i love about it, and that's what i fell in love with and and you know and i, I want to use what we're doing the platform that we have now to remind people about that, that it's not about i house music is not about i it's about we you know there, there's no i in house mm-hmm. you know there, there really isn't and then that's what it should be all about so yeah, let's spend less time focusing on us and what I'm doing. It's like what we're we doing collectively as a thing and, and don't be frightened to celebrate each other's successes and helping each other out. That's what it should be about. And we can just remind ourselves that that's what we, you know, that's what the, the original values of house music are about. That's why it started. It started in fairly sort of difficult times, should I say, you know, and it was an escape from, it was an escape from, from that it was the antithesis of what that situation was about and let's make sure that we, we never lose sight of that
0: i love it brilliant thought to end on that's that's amazing thank you so much oh thanks Matt. thank
1: you for having me i really appreciate it really really enjoyed it all right Matt. Bye, mate. take care
0: house culture What a lovely fella, right? I really enjoyed that one. Not only was it inspiring to hear about his vision for the scene, as well as what he's done for it, it was really interesting to hear about his approach to it as a business as well. Lots to be learned for us all I reckon. As you heard, in this 20th anniversary year for Tour Room, Mark's already had a very busy August, and the Music Matters Tour continues with events in Chicago, Montreal, Bucharest and Bali before the end of the year. Let us know if you're lucky enough to catch him at any of those. And Mark's new Falls Paradise label has had an incredible launch with his cover version of Prince's I Want to Be Your Lover featuring the gorgeous vocals of Beverly Knight. This achieved a track source number one. The latest release also doing the damage on his label is Mark's remake of the mojo classic Lady. So be sure to check that out as well. Speaking of tracks, get yourself over to the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify. This is where Mark's submissions now feature alongside all of the other choices from our previous podcast guests. However, if you want to hear that epic nine and a half minute deep dish mix of Elastic Reality's Casa de X, you'll have to check that one out on YouTube. Whilst you're over at Spotify, you can now drop us a comment in the Q&A section under the episode description, or if you're not listening via those green guys, feel free to leave us a review on Apple, a comment on YouTube, or even a message on our Instagram. Hearing your feedback plays a massive part in keeping the show going. could even get you a shout out on a future episode. This time around, I want to say a huge hi, as well as a massive thank you to Gravesy, He took it upon himself to donate some of his hard-earned cash to us via the supporter feature linked in the show notes. He said that he's loving the series, the walk down memory lane has been an absolute joy and that he will be contributing again. Thank you so much, Gravesy. If you're listening to this, drop us a note directly so we can thank you more personally. If you want to stay in touch with us, you can do that by following us on Instagram at HouseCultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And... If you want to follow me directly, you can find me on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening, rave safe, and see you next time. House
1: Culture.